Welcome to part four of the Written by Rich Husick podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Some of you may be curious how a book is written by three different people. The Rainy Day series started its life years ago as a screenplay. My longtime television writing partner, Arnold Rudnick, had been working on a story with a parapsychologist he knew, Lloyd Auerbach. He asked me if I was interested in working on the project with them, and we transformed their original idea, Psychops, into Rainy Day. You'll hear more about that process in the author's note at the end of this book. We got a lot of positive feedback on the script, but it was never produced. So, when I started writing novels, I asked Arnold and Lloyd if they would like to turn the project into a book series. The original story from the screenplay became the basis for the plot of this book, which was in large part based on Lloyd's life and work. So, even though we weren't all hunched over the same keyboard, this book is a product of all our labors, as will future stories in the series. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon, using the links in this episode's description, to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 11 In the dream, and he knew it was a dream right away, Nate was back at the scene of the shooting. It didn't feel exactly like the dream he had had during a surgery, though. This time, he wasn't just standing among the shoppers. He was watching from a different point of view, from above. He could clearly see the layout of the store, how the robbers had positioned themselves so the store patrons were between them and Max. Then he saw the young man scuffle with the thin man. He could even see himself willing the man to back off. Nothing was worth his life. Things could be replaced. But the young man was headstrong, emotional, unstoppable. Nate could see himself watch the paperweight fly through the air and hit the skinny man in the back. He knew at that moment what the reaction would be and that he only had a matter of seconds, no, less than a second, to react. He sprinted at the young man as if launched from the starting blocks of a hundred-yard dash. He tried to tell himself to stay low, to tackle the man at the waist, to cut his legs out from under him, to stay out of the path of the bullet. But he knew it was too late. The bullet was going to hit the young man in the chest. The only thing he could do was put his own body in its path. Nate watched it all happen in slow motion. Even though he was watching, he could feel the sharp burning pain of the bullet enter his chest as his body took the place of the young man's. The pain was gone, and he was just an observer again. He saw the thin man taking aim at the young man. He saw the fat man stop him and say something in his ear. The words were loud and clear in Nate's dream, as if it was the only sound in the room. Leave him. Get in the caddy. Get in the caddy? Nate woke up. It was dusk. The dream hung on the edge of his consciousness. More than a dream, a memory. Only, that wasn't quite right. He couldn't have remembered anything that happened after he was shot. The only thing he could recall was the pain, Max's face leaning over him, the lights of the ambulance, a cacophony of sounds. But he was absolutely certain that he never heard one gunman call the other, Catty. No, he didn't call him Catty. He said, get in the Catty. Get in the Caddy. Get in the Caddy? Cadillac? Then he remembered the echoes of another dream, the one he had had when he was waking up from his anesthesia. That weird moment when he thought he was outside, then inside the robber's hideout. Somewhere in the loin, he thought, which was crazy. But wasn't there something outside the house? A car in the driveway? A Cadillac? Now it made a bit of sense to Nate. He had fallen asleep thumbing through the file Max had given him. His mind had married those last waking thoughts with the dream of the robber's hideout. He saw a Cadillac in his dream, and his mind had created dialogue for him. Dreams could do that. He stood and immediately sat back down again. He felt lightheaded. 
He felt hungry. Nate rose again, more slowly this time. He stood still for a moment until he felt his balance return. He went into the kitchen and fixed himself a dinner of canned soup and a sandwich. He wanted to open a bottle of wine. There was a nice Pinot Noir that would be perfect for such a casual dinner, but the meds. After he ate, he went into the bathroom and organized the various prescriptions the hospital pharmacy had sent home with him. He was especially careful with the pain medication. He had known fellow officers on the force who had fallen under the influence of opioids, and it was not a battle he wanted to take on. He swallowed the combination of analgesics and antibiotics with a glass of tepid water. It was a challenge completing the rest of his bedtime routine with his left hand. Funny how something as simple as brushing his teeth became a test of his dexterity. Keeping his right arm still and in the sling made it even more difficult. Undressing was particularly hard. He managed to get down to his underwear and stop there. Normally he'd slip into some sleeping pants and a fresh t-shirt, but he'd already struggled to take off the shirt the nurse had helped him slip on at the hospital. He figured that it was enough stretching and bending for his battered shoulder for one day. Nate lay in the bed for a while, but sleep wouldn't come. He got up, went to the living room, and gathered up the file on the robbery and what the police were classifying as his own attempted murder. He brought it into the dining room table and began to lay out pages from the file along with photographs and copies of handwritten statements. He found a floor plan of the store and attached little sticky flags on it, a type you'd see pointing to the parts of a contract you were supposed to sign or initial. He always kept a supply of them nearby. He found them tidier than scribbling in the margins, as Max often did, when he could be bothered to read the reports. Max claimed that it was much more efficient for him to let Nate digest the material and summarize it for him. Nate didn't complain. This was the part of police work he enjoyed, poring over the details, finding the inconsistencies, the hidden clues. It was like a puzzle. So many of his colleagues, Max included, wanted to be out on the streets, banging down doors, putting the squeeze on snitches. But detectives really did more than ask a lot of questions, read a lot of reports, and write even more. The robbery was the most action Nate and Max had seen in years. His days of chasing junkies or working crowd control at one protest or another were over. He kept himself fit, but not because he expected to get into a fight with a suspect or do some crazy parkour chase through a Knob Hill construction site. Nate started by reading the reports submitted by Max and the other officers from the scene. These included interviews with all the witnesses inside the store, more than 30 of them, and employees from a few neighboring shops who thought they might have seen two men in long, loose coats hurry by carrying a large duffel bag. What was conspicuously missing was any information about what kind of car the men had left in or if they even left in a car. They could have hopped on a bus. It wouldn't be the first time criminals had used public transportation as their getaway ride. The reason for this became apparent when Nate came across an addendum to one of the reports describing two long coats found stuffed into recycling bins two doors down from the gift shop. It was clear the men had ditched the overcoats and likely donned caps or sunglasses or some other accessory that changed their appearance. Possibly the duffel converted to a wheeled configuration so they looked like a couple of tourists trying to catch a ride to the airport. Maybe one of them got the car and picked up the second robber down the street. Or maybe they just strolled down the street with thousands of dollars in stolen goods, cash, and saleable identities, and no one paid them any mind at all. People's attention was so diverted to phone screens and other distractions that canvassing for eyewitnesses was an exercise in futility. But occasionally, there was someone who saw something that was relevant, though not initially recognized as such. So, he poured through every word of every witness statement, cursing when each one ended with unasked questions that were relevant to the case. Of course, with hindsight, it was easy to fault the interviewers for not following up. At the time the statements were taken, the facts that the robbers had discarded their coats was not yet known. So they focused on the description Max had provided. It would have taken mere seconds for the robbers to slip out of their coats and shoulder holsters. The fact that the guns were not also found 
led Nate to believe that they took those with them, lightly stuffing them into the duffel with the loot. But the coats were easily balled up and dumped into a nearby bin. No one would take notice of someone throwing something away. However, they were likely wearing the coats when they arrived, by whatever mode of transportation they had used, to hide their weapons. And they had strode along a busy commercial street. There were security cameras on that block, some belonging to a bank that had shot a part of the street, but a review of those had shown nothing in the moments leading up to the robbery. And the cameras inside the gift shop were low res and only told them what they already knew. Nate was convinced that there was a shot of the suspect somewhere, in the background of someone's selfie, or in the periphery of a dash cam of a passing car. The police had already put out a general request for information from witnesses who might have been in the area, but those never reached more than a small percentage of the people in the city. Regardless, he suggested the captain to make a specific plea for dashcam footage from anyone driving down that avenue between those hours on that day and previous days. The men had to have cased the street, taking note of where the blind spots were and where they could do their quick change without being on camera. And if she complained about manpower, he'd volunteer to do it. He'd be sidelined for several months at least, longer depending on the outcomes of his coming shoulder surgeries. He started his list that could sense Max rolling his eyes at that moment. But lists worked. Nate always said Santa Claus would make a great detective because he made his list and checked it twice. Max countered that St. Nick would be a great detective because he sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake. The list started on a legal pad. Nate liked having the extra three inches to work on. He started off with the suspects, what he knew about them, the physical description, things they said, and then a list of questions about them. Were they local or from out of town? Was this a one-time heist or part of a spree? Had they done the same type of robbery elsewhere in the city, the state, the country? Nate found he was able to write with his right hand as long as he didn't move his arm. The constraint caused him to twist his entire body as he scrawled his list down the legal pad, until he realized it was just easier to move the pad. He started a second list inventorying all the evidence and witness statements that seemed at all potentially relevant. Normally, he would be able to coordinate the officers who were doing the initial canvassing and give them some direction on the type of questions they should be asking. They would have been instructed to call him in immediately if they came across anyone who had anything resembling the type of information Nate was looking for. But this time around, he had to rely on Max organizing those initial interviews. And he was obviously distracted with Nate's condition and the fact that there were two armed and dangerous fugitives on the loose. The results were substantially below Nate's expectations, but he wasn't going to be hard on anyone for it. It was a tough situation. He made tick marks next to the names of witnesses he'd want to question himself. The passage of time and the right questions could often reveal important information that initially seemed irrelevant. What he didn't include in either of his lists were the details of the strangely vivid dreams he had experienced. Those he knew were inventions of his subconscious. While he'd often had revelations on cases after going to sleep thinking about a case, this was not the same thing. It was different, strange. And that, in Nate's mind, made it something not to be trusted. He spent some time going over the photographs. Initially, seeing the bloodstain on the store's floor where he had been shot was difficult. It was a reminder of how reckless he had been. If it had been Max instead of himself launching his body into the path of a bullet, he would have chewed out the younger detective with a furious tirade about taking chances. But having been in that situation where his instincts just took over and squashed any rational thought or analysis, he knew that anger would have been misplaced. Nate put aside the fact that it was his own blood smeared on the floor and analyzed the photographs as he would any other crime scene. He wasn't sure what he was looking for. There was little to discover in any regard. The blood was smeared and had been trampled by several people, including Max and the paramedics. The robbers hadn't been anywhere near him at the time, so it wasn't relevant to them in any manner except that the bullet fragments the doctor had pulled out of his chest might identify the gun used if one was ever found. 
Then he realized what was nagging at him, why he was spending so much time looking at those photos. When he viewed the wide shot, he realized that when he tried to get up, he was facing Max. He was facing the rear of the gift shop. His back was to the door. There was no way he could have seen at any point what the men were doing when they left or known if either of them said anything. This confirmed in his mind that the dream was indeed a fantasy, wishful thinking on the part of his subconscious that he held some critical piece of evidence in some dark corner of his memory. No, that was clearly not possible. He actually felt relieved. Nate checked his watch. The light outside had long ago faded from the dimness of dusk to the blackness of night, and he was surprised to find it was closing in on 3 a.m. The revelation unleashed a wave of fatigue. He stepped back from the table and took in the collage of evidence and lists and sticky notes he'd been working on for hours. It felt good to be doing something. All those days in a hospital bed had left him feeling anxious. Now, with a sense of accomplishment at the front of his mind, he found sleep came easily, and he drifted off and did not dream of getting shot. Chapter 12 Dave sat at a small table that served as his desk and sorted the contents of a file box. There were several dozen other similar boxes stacked behind him. A light bulb hung above him from a cord, barely giving clearance to Dave's head, and he could feel the heat of it on his forehead. Emily sat cross-legged in an old executive office chair that swallowed her up, reading a book and occasionally jotting down notes on a laptop perched precariously on one of the armrests. The cracked leather was patched in places by duct tape. Aren't you going to help me? Dave asked. I have to study, Emily replied. And I have a thesis to research and write. Yeah? So why are you sorting through all those old files? Dr. Day lost her space in the archives. He leafed through a stack of photos, flipped them over. Jeez, she's got stuff from ten different incidents in this box. This isn't a filing system, it's a hoard. You can always say no to her, Emily suggested. Yeah, right, you can, but every time I try, I end up doing what I said I wouldn't do, plus half a dozen other things. Like organizing all her old files? Emily asked. Dave screwed up his voice and mimicked Emily's question in a whiny voice. Like organizing all her old files? He dropped the file he was looking at into its box. Why doesn't she ask you to do this? You like doing research. The lights went out. The only illumination was a dim glow from Emily's laptop. Great, Dave muttered. We're stuck down here in the musty, dusty dark, and I'll bet she's sitting in a Starbucks sipping a $7 coffee. Then there was a sound that raised the hair on the back of Dave's neck, an unearthly screech. What the hell was that? he asked, a note of fear creeping into his voice. Pipes, Emily answered, unfazed. That didn't sound like a pipe. Dave fished his phone out of his pocket and switched the camera into flashlight mode. He started scanning the perimeter of their area. The basement office was nestled among a network of water, steam, and sewage pipes. There were also old steel filing cabinets packed together like shipping containers at a dock, with broken bits of chairs, desks, and tables stacked on top of them. It was like a Sargasso Sea of obsolete office furniture. They shared this space with the occasional building engineer and what Dave estimated to be at least 20 rats. Rats the size of cats, as he described them. No one else ever saw them and the traps he laid went unsprung. Emily had another explanation. Pipes. They were everywhere, and they each had their own particular noises as various fluids at varying temperatures rushed around in them. The sounds didn't seem to bother Emily, but Dave found them unnerving and distracting. Ironically, it was more comforting to blame it all on a population of giant, invisible rats. Is there a fuse box around here? I think I saw some electrical stuff in the back corner, Emily offered. From her tone, Dave had no idea if she was being helpful or sarcastic, but decided to put his faith in the former and pick his way through a random placement of shelves 
until he found what looked like some sort of electrical box with a large lever on one side. The lever was in the off position. He reached out to touch it, but then his paranoia held him back. He pulled his arm back up into the sleeve of his sweatshirt and used it as a thumbless mitten, then pushed the lever back to the on position. A nearby light came on. Standing at the edge of its cone of illumination was a man, his face shrouded in shadow. Dave was surprised and opened his mouth to ask who he was and what he wanted. But before he could, the man stepped forward. He had the head of a pig. Oink, grunted the pigman. Dave screamed and backed up into a shelf. A dusty stack of empty boxes fell on him and he collapsed to the floor. Who are you? What do you want? Dave screamed. Emily walked over to see what was going on. She saw Dave on the floor, then looked over at the pigman. Hey, Bits, she said to him. You finally found us, huh? The pigman took off the latex mask, revealing the face of a skinny, twenty-something guy with red hair and a speckled band of freckles across his cheeks. How did you know it was me? Bartholomew Bits Bigelow asked. Emily cast a glance down at his shoes. He was wearing moccasins with white sweat socks. Bits looked down at his feet. Oh, he said. Besides, you're too skinny to be a real pigman, Emily added. I could be a pigman who was down here starving for years, Bits suggested. Oh, that's where all the rats went. Ha ha, Dave said, getting up from the floor and dusting himself off. Very funny, but I knew it was you. You did not. You didn't, Emily confirmed. You guys are going to miss me when I graduate, Dave said as he made his way back to the file sorting table. He knew better than to get into a three-way conversation with Bits and Emily. This place is awesome, Bits said, looking around. Yeah, I know. Doc Day is not a fan, though. She's working on getting us something less subterranean, Emily replied. Where is she? Bits asked. She asked me to meet her here. She probably wants you to set up the place with Wi-Fi. There are absolutely no bars down here. It's like the Middle Ages. The 90s? Bits joked. They walked back toward the main office area. Off in its own little nook was Jennifer Day's workspace. Her Harry Houdini poster was propped up against the back wall, hiding the pipes and dusty masonry. The mysterious professor poster was positioned as it had been in the previous office, across from Houdini. The wooden desk from her upstairs office was situated directly in front of it. The moving men didn't have it on their manifest, but Jennifer was able to talk them into bringing it down with the rest of her belongings and files. Gleeful at the rage, she imagined Crenshaw would display when he found a folding table in its place. You guys got a fiber optic line down here? Bits asked. I don't think so, Emily answered. We do have a phone line. Yeah, that won't do. Bits inspected the conduit that led to a sparse arrangement of electrical outlets. I might be able to piggyback a signal on the power lines. You should have some pretty decent bandwidth if I plug you directly into the main switch. Sweet, Emily said. I hate it when I have lag on Fortnite. Hey, if you're interested, I have a build of the game with some cheats built in. We'll talk later. I have midterms. Can't get caught up in any time-eating battle royales just now. I admire your restraint, Bits said. Emily knew the older guy had a crush on her, but he wasn't really her type, and she could never figure out what that was exactly. Great news, everybody, announced Jennifer as she entered the office carrying a cardboard tray populated with coffee cups. You got us out of this death trap, Dave guessed hopeful. No, not yet. She held up the tray. I have coffee for everyone. Emily and Bits each helped themselves with the cup marked with their name. Dave reluctantly approached and took the one for him. He sipped at it, then grimaced. Yuck, is that stevia? he asked. That's better for you than sugar, Jennifer told him. She took her cup to her desk and sat down and took a sip. You'll thank me for it when you're 80 and don't have diabetes. She noticed Bits staring at her. Hey, Bits. Welcome to our office cave. Yeah, very cool. Internet? He asked. Internet. 
And how are you coming with those new speaker boxes? Oh, I give up on those. You did? I need those. No, you don't. I've got something better. He handed her what looked like a small ring box. For me? Jennifer said. This is so sudden, Bits. You haven't even met my parents. Just open it, he said, unamused. Jennifer opened the small box and found what looked like one of a pair of Bluetooth earpieces inside. Explain, she said, looking at Bits. Well, it looks like a Bluetooth earpiece, and it is, essentially, but instead of connecting to your phone, it connects to the box. You can have a bunch of them all synced up. And I wrote a new noise suppression algorithm so you won't get an earful of static, only the audio patterns that represent possible DVs. Yes, Jennifer said, looking at Bits longingly. I will marry you. Careful, he'll take you up on that, Emily warned. Bits blushed. This is spectacular, Jennifer said. Great job, Bits. You can also sync the feed with the video recordings. Oh, and it does connect to your phone as well. Great. All we need is a good case to investigate. I thought we'd be getting more calls after the Palace Theater piece in the paper. Bits looked down at her desk phone. He reached over, unplugged the cable from one socket, and moved it to another. The phone's display came to life, booted up, and then rang. Oh, said Jennifer in surprise. That's better. She looked to Emily, who rolled her eyes and answered the phone. Dr. Day's office. She listened for a while, then put the mouthpiece of the phone against her shoulder. Do you want to do the Mo Hogan podcast? They saw the article in the paper and want to know if you'll come by for an interview. A podcast? Jennifer asked suspiciously. Mo Hogan? Bits asked. Holy shit, that guy's got like two million subscribers. Yeah, even I've heard of him, Dave added. Jennifer shrugged. Okay, when? Emily put the phone back to her ear. When? She listened for a moment. Tonight, six o'clock-ish. What does my calendar look like? Jennifer asked. Emily put the phone to her shoulder again. It's a big piece of paper with a grid on it that hangs on the wall. Jennifer raised an unamused eyebrow. You're free, Emily confirmed. Then yes. Yes, Emily said into the phone. Yeah, I don't have a pen on me. Just email it over. Okay, thanks. This might be the kind of thing that will help get the word out and get my research into high gear. Yeah, confirmed Dave. It's also the kind of thing that's going to leave us stuck in this dungeon. Jennifer ignored Dave's pessimism. I should really probably listen to some of his podcasts to prepare. You can watch them on YouTube, Emily suggested. She turned to bits. How long do we get Wi-Fi down here? I can probably sneak in a patch the main switch tonight. Great. I'll be at Starbucks if you need me. She got up from behind the desk, wove her way toward the freight elevator, leaving her faithful staff behind. Do you think Mo will ask her to smoke pot with him? Emily asked Bits. Hell yeah. He asked the governor. Really? I gotta download that one. Chapter 13 Diane lit the bundle of dried herbs, and the smoke quickly filled the apartment with the overpowering scent of sage. She was grateful she heeded the advice of the woman at the shop to take the batteries out of her smoke detectors. Once the white cloud was delivered to every corner of the apartment, she left the remainder of the bundle to smolder in a clay bowl. She pulled some crystals from a small paper bag and started placing pairs of pink and black rocks on the windowsills throughout the apartment, including the small window in the bathroom. It was the first time Diane had been back at her place in a while for anything more than grabbing a change of clothes. Even though her friend would never admit it, Diane knew she had worn out her welcome on Julie's couch. She had stopped by a local New Age store that specialized in the spiritual and occult. The owner did not seem phased when Diane explained her situation. In fact, she seemed to be familiar with the ghosts of the Oakley Arms, though in her experience they were mostly benign. Nevertheless, she showed Diane a selection of items known to repel spirits and encouraged them to move on from a particular location. Most of it seemed like nonsense to Diane, 
but on the other hand, until a week ago when she had seen an actual ghost with her own eyes, she thought psychics and mediums were mostly frauds and scammers. Now she didn't quite know what to believe. The shop she visited was highly rated on Yelp, so Diane decided to put her faith in the unconventional wisdom on the subject and educate herself, hoping to better discern the truth from the fiction. She settled in on the couch wrapped up in a crocheted afghan. She grabbed her phone off the coffee table, tapped it awake, and scanned the news feed. She had watched the Hollywood version of a few supposedly true stories, but none of them seemed true to Diane's experience. The ghost she saw was not interested, it seemed, in possessing her or throwing things around her apartment. When she thought back to that night, he didn't seem threatening, but rather concerned. But the mere fact that he was in her apartment was what disturbed her. Moving was not an option. She had almost nine months left on her lease, and there was a strict subletting clause to prevent Airbnb rentals. Hopefully the sage and crystals would have the advertised effect, but just that one encounter had already changed the way she lived. Diane read through a few links to stories about different paranormal encounters. There were a lot of reported hauntings in San Francisco. Many of them were attributed to the gold rush and the great quake, and of course Alcatraz. It struck her that so many hauntings were associated with famous people and events. There were a lot of YouTube videos that had caught her attention as well. In this era of special effects on your phone, she was wary of almost all the shadowy photos that claimed to represent the presence of spirits. There were so many self-styled ghost hunters out there purporting to have hard evidence of the existence of the supernatural. All Diane wanted was to be able to sleep through the night without waking at the sound of every creak and groan of the old building that she previously found charming and even soothing. A notification at the top of her screen caught her attention. It was an alert that a new episode of The Mo Hogan Show was streaming live right now. The guest was a parapsychologist. It was a name she had seen a few times in the dozens of stories she had read over the last week. Dr. Jennifer Day. Diane clicked on the view button and the YouTube app opened. She grabbed the television remote, turned on the set, and switched the input to the little dongle she had bought a while back to be able to watch stuff on her television rather than the tiny screen of her phone. She tapped on the casting icon, and after a couple seconds, the independent podcast came to life on the big screen. She enjoyed the casual nature of Mo Hogan's show. It was two, sometimes three people talking around a table. It had started out as an audio-only show, capitalizing on Mo's celebrity, and the audience he had built up as a stand-up comedian. Just a few friends joking around, exchanging stories, and debating various topics. As the popularity of the show grew, so did the quality of the people who appeared on it. Mo was a sincerely curious person who was friendly and congenial with anyone anywhere on the political or socioeconomic spectrum. He had a knack for finding something interesting to talk about with Nobel Prize winning scientists or conspiracy theory talk radio hosts or athletes, entertainers, and fellow comedians. But it wasn't like the talk shows on television. The podcast medium allowed for a long-form presentation that often lasted two or three hours. There were no commercials, except for the occasional sponsor's pitch at the beginning of the show, or product placement. His audience had grown from the thousands to the millions, rivaling many cable TV shows. And now, thanks to a tiny thumb drive-sized device plugged into one of the sockets on her television, Diane could watch it in stereo sound and high-def video. The show began with Mo thanking his sponsors and introducing his guest for the next couple hours, parapsychologist Jennifer Day. Dr. Day, welcome to the show. Please, call me Jennifer, she said with a disarming smile. Okay, Jennifer, Mo replied, just as charming. I'm so glad you're here. I've been reading about you and your investigations for years, but I have to say the one about the Palace Theater was a little different. You actually debunked a haunting. Well, I would say that most of the cases I investigate turn out not to be supernatural or paranormal in nature. Really? 
Yes, cases with genuine ghosts, or apparitions as most of us call them, are relatively rare, at least the type that people associate with Hollywood movies and TV shows. So, no poltergeist-type kidnappings of young girls through the television? She laughed. No, nothing like that, but that is a cool movie. In the top ten scariest movies ever, Mo agreed. But before we get into all the Ghostbusters stuff, tell me about you. Did you grow up fascinated with ghosts and the supernatural? No, not really. I was a pretty typical kid. Played with dolls, liked boy bands, still do. Loved books. As I got older, I became fascinated with history and later anthropology. I stole my brother's Legos and built a model of Stonehenge. I idolized Mary Leakey. Right, she and her husband found some crazy old human ancestor, Mo interrupted. She was amazing. I watched and read everything I could find about her. A lot of it was old PBS and BBC documentaries. It was a little confusing to my parents that my hero had died in the early 70s. That is a little strange, Jennifer. It was. When I dressed up as her for Halloween, most people thought I was Jane from Tarzan. Yeah, I don't think they sell Mary Leakey costumes at Walmart. Jennifer smiled. No, I had to cobble it together with stuff I found at thrift shops. But it stuck with you. It did. When it came time for college, there was no question that I was going to be an anthropologist. I was going to make some earth-shaking discovery like Mary Leakey. And someone would make PBS and BBC documentaries about me. Well, will a podcast interview do? Jennifer looked around and nodded. Yeah, this is good. I've arrived. Mo laughed again. And we're glad you arrived here. Anyway, did you do any of that dusting bones with paintbrushes in the desert stuff? Hardly. Turns out anthropology is not that exciting. But the PBS and BBC documentaries? Few and far between. Turns out most of the anthropologists just read what other anthropologists have written and try to poke holes in it. It seems we've found most of the old stuff people have left lying around already. King Tut's tomb has been opened, and all the ancient hominids have been dug up. I was fortunate enough to be at a school with a decent anthropology archive, and I started digging through it looking for some long-standing theory I could poke holes in. Did you find it? No. Turns out you can only look at the birth of agriculture so many ways. But what I did find was this sort of common theme throughout pretty much every culture I studied. Which was? Death. I should have seen that coming. I know a woman down in Los Angeles who says she can. <laughs> Sounds like she's a lot of fun at dinner parties. Thank you for a lovely time. I'd say I'm looking forward to seeing you again, but that's not going to happen. Jennifer laughed. <laughs> yeah, she can be a bit of a downer. Well, what do you mean by death? Obviously we all die. And I'm guessing every culture has something to say about that. What's interesting is how similar they are. How many independent cultures came to have a belief in an afterlife? The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Chinese, Native Americans, the Mayans, the Norse. Eventually that belief evolved into the concepts of heaven and hell that most people in Islam and Christianity are familiar with. But each one encompasses the idea that some part of us goes on after death. Wow, I never thought of it like that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. So that became my thesis. How this near-universal conviction came to be. What was the evidentiary basis for it? Did you get any resistance for tackling the subject from that point of view? Jennifer took a deep breath and sighed. Well, a bit. And by a bit, I mean I was almost universally shut down. But there is a PhD after your name. Yes, I did eventually find an advisor willing to work with me on the topic. I spent more than two years doing the research. I finally got to do some field work. I'm guessing it didn't include any dusty bones or paintbrushes. Not quite. A lot of interviews with people from widely divergent cultures, all telling basically the same story. Ghosts are real. More or less. 
at least the idea that the spirit or the soul lives on in some way after the body dies. And did you find any evidence of this during your research? I did, Jennifer said plainly. You met ghosts? I've met many, during my research and then the years since. But no selfies with any of them, Mo challenged. No, not quite, but we have some videos with interesting visual events. Any headless horsemen or weeping brides traipsing across the moors? No, we're sadly lacking of moors here in Northern California. Mo laughed. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this. I was reading that you also believe in things like precognition, astral projection, and other psychic abilities. How does that tie into your research as an anthropologist investigating afterlife belief systems? Well, let's think about it. If there is a part of us that continues on after we die, then it must be with us while we're alive. Makes sense. And if we have this aspect to ourselves, this consciousness, then why couldn't it, under the right circumstances, exist outside of our living bodies as well as our dead ones? I've never heard anyone explain it like that. Chances are it's not bound by the same laws of time and space that we are in our corporeal bodies. Could that explain psychic abilities, precognition, astral projection, remote viewing? Yeah, I can see that. So, evidence of psychic phenomena would support the existence of the spirits. If we have a consciousness that can exist in another plane, that sometimes intersects with our mortal reality, it opens up a whole other realm of possibilities and perceptions. I can't argue with that. Let's go back to this story about the Palace Theater. Sure. What happened there? The article I read said that the manager of the theater, by the way, if anyone in the San Francisco area wants to have a truly great art house movie experience, I saw Citizen Kane there myself. Bit of a scratchy 35mm print, but still amazing to see it on the big screen. I agree, it's a beautiful theater, and it has a long and rich history. There was even supposedly a murder or suicide there? Several. And the manager was convinced that he was being haunted by some spirits attached to the place. He was. He was afraid that if word got out, people wouldn't want to come and he'd have to shut the place down. I actually would pay more to go to a haunted theater, Mo said. Well, Mr. Nagel didn't have your marketing foresight. So he asked you to come and investigate. He actually was hoping I could get rid of the ghost for him. How do you deal with someone like that? Well, he's not unusual in that regard. It may seem cool to be haunted, that it's some kind of fun Beetlejuice-type experience, but it's rather disconcerting to share your home or your workplace with a ghost. Diane perked up at this point in the conversation. She cast a glance toward the bathroom, half expecting to see the sad young man standing there, looking at her. But there was nothing. Maybe the sage and crystals were doing their job. We started off by just looking around, asking questions, getting a feel for the place. I kind of picture you wired up with all sorts of gadgets and sensors. Jennifer smiled. My assistant, Dave, carries the bulky stuff. I have a tech guy who made me a smaller sensor array that I can connect to my phone with Bluetooth. Cool. Yeah, we've come a long way from Ouija boards. So you go in, scan in for ghosts, skip to where you realize this isn't one. Well, it was a combination of things. There was a periodic nature to the events we were experiencing. So there was something weird going on, it just wasn't his imagination. Definitely something real. Physical vibrations and a feeling of nausea. Which led you to believe what? That it was something mechanical rather than paranormal in nature. And not to spoil your story, but it turned out to be something rather mundane. A washing machine. A washing machine? A very large washing machine. You know how your washing machine makes a horrible noise when it hits the spin cycle and the load is unbalanced? I don't really do laundry. I have people, but I've heard stories. Well, imagine a washing machine ten feet tall. Yeah, that's all kind of scary without being a ghost. Okay, changing subjects on you. 
So, what do your parents think of all this? Jennifer paused. She didn't expect this question and was not prepared to talk about her family. Sore subject? Mo asked. No, not at all, Jennifer lied. Just not very interesting. Well, now you've got me curious as to why it's not interesting. Jennifer smiled. Let's just say they had other plans for me. Yeah, that sucks when parents don't support their kids. I mean, look at you. A PhD, a professor at a state university, two published books. No wonder they're disappointed. Jennifer smiled again. She always did that when she was nervous or didn't want to answer a question. She was an attractive woman who hated trading on her looks. But sometimes a disarming smile was the only weapon she had to get out of a tight spot. Mo studied her, trying to figure out what she was hiding. Is it kids? Grandkids? They wanted to see you married to some rich prick with a mansion in Palo Alto? Jennifer laughed at the image of her, the socialite wife of a Silicon Valley executive. She also laughed because he was so close to the truth. All right, Mo said, sensing he had mined that topic for all she was comfortable to give. Moving on. I also read that you're somewhat of an accomplished magician. I am, she said proudly. The video feed switched to a version of Jennifer's mysterious professor poster. Ooh, you look kind of scary and sexy all at the same time in that picture, Mo said. I had fun with that, Jennifer confessed. Isn't magic kind of cheating? What do you mean? Well, like when I go to see Penn and Teller, they tell you right up front that everything they do is a trick. There is no real magic. The psychic stuff they do is fake. That is true. I'm a big fan of theirs. Yeah, but aren't they kind of in the tradition of the Amazing Randy? I mean, they would call bullshit on anything you might sincerely present as evidence of the paranormal. Oh, I'm certain they could replicate anything I've seen with straight-up magic tricks. But I saw a movie about the moon landing that they did with special effects. That doesn't mean we didn't go to the moon. Don't get me started on that, Mo warned humorously. But, fake moon landing aside, that's an interesting point. They can make a digital dinosaur rampage through San Diego, and it's obviously not a real dinosaur. But that's not to say that there weren't real dinosaurs. Exactly. Okay, I see what you're saying. But let's get back to the magic thing. Who's to say that you aren't tricking people with your skill of delusions? I guess at some point it's a matter of faith. I learned magic so I could more easily spot the scams, attention seekers, and outright frauds. Are there a lot of them out there? Yes, maybe more than the real deal. But I know the difference because I've lived in both worlds. The one of magic and the one of the paranormal. They can both exist simultaneously. Not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you do a magic trick for me right now? How about a little telekinesis, Jennifer offered. Sounds cool. Jennifer looked at the assortment of items on the table between herself and Mo. She put a hand up to the side of her face, pushing her hair behind her ear, she thought. At the same time, she scraped off a small piece of wax she had placed behind her ear earlier, one attached to a virtually invisible strand of black thread, the other end of which was wound around a button on the jacket she wore over her turtleneck. She picked out a pen and placed it on the table between them. As she did so, she stuck the waxy end of the thread to a point at its center and gave it a spin, so it whirled around like a mini-propeller. She held her hand over the pen and slowly raised it. As she did so, the pen followed. The thread lay between her fingers. As she leaned back, the pen rose even higher. The dark clothing she wore created the perfect background for the thread to be undetectable. And the spinning of the pen made it certain that no one would notice a small ball of sticky wax that connected it to the thread. Jennifer grabbed the pen out of midair and quickly scraped the wax off with a practiced move. Let me see that, Mo insisted. Jennifer handed him the pen. Mo inspected it, regarded her suspiciously. You are a good lady, he said. How did you do that? I swear, we did not talk about this in advance, and that is definitely my pen. And it never did any crazy shit like that before. 
Well, unlike Penn and Teller, I try not to give away all my secrets. That was probably the coolest thing anyone has ever done on this show. That's going viral. I predict that right now. That clip is going to light up the tubes. Jennifer smiled. They spoke for over two hours. Much of it was a spirited debate in which Mo took on the role as devil's advocate, and he and Jennifer genially sparred on topics ranging from spoon-bending to near-death experiences. Diane watched the whole interview without once getting up from her spot on the couch. As the show drew to a close, she picked up her phone and quickly googled the parapsychologist's name. There was a link to a website that she clicked on. It was fairly slick as such sites went, and she'd seen a lot of them in the last week. She wondered how Dr. Days had escaped her attention. It wasn't filled with advertisements and clickbait like most of the others. She had a very orderly catalog of her published works, some online tests to determine your psychic abilities, and what Diane was particularly searching for, a contact page. Diane filled out the simple online form, unconcerned about disclosing her address and phone number. Dr. Day did not seem like some kind of cable TV huckster. Jennifer Day had a PhD. She taught at a state university. Major newspapers published stories about her. Hell, she was on the Mo Hogan show. When it came to the portion of the form where she was asked to describe the situation she wanted to have investigated, she paused to think of something that would not make her sound crazy. There was a crash in the bathroom. Diane put her phone aside and suddenly felt like she had just entered a walk-in freezer, as a wave of cold washed over her. She looked down at her arm and was surprised to see the hairs standing straight up, and goosebumps from her wrists to her shoulders. She got up and tentatively walked across the room to the open bathroom door to investigate. On the floor was a small broken bottle of rose water perfume. She couldn't remember leaving it near the edge of the vanity. She looked around, half expecting to see the shadowy figure of the man who had scared her that night. But there was nothing. The scents from the rose water and sage made for a pungent combination. Diane grabbed a dustpan and broom and a roll of paper towels to clean up the mess. Once she was finished, she plopped back down on the sofa and picked up the phone. In the box marked Paranormal Phenomena You Want Investigated, she wrote, There is a ghost of a man in my apartment at the Oakley Arms. It is a very old building, and he appears to be from at least 50 years ago. He frightened me one night, but I don't think he meant to. Nonetheless, I would like to see if he can be encouraged to leave somehow, if that's something you do. Please help. I don't know where else to turn. Diane tapped the send button, and the text from her phone screen disappeared off to the cloud. She put the phone back down, switched her television back to a regular cable feed, and flipped through the channels until she found a movie that would hopefully lull her to sleep. Thank you for listening to Part 4 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Written by Rich Hosick podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please leave a review on Amazon or Audible and stay tuned for more chapters in this thrilling paranormal mystery in the coming weeks. Also, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app or download these episodes on Audible. Give me a like or five stars and a quick review. And most importantly, share Near Death and my weekly audio short stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E. Com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Rich Hosek. Give us a like on Facebook, at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon, and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.